This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest wi-fi access for customers bt's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy whatever your business bt's got your back search bt's got your back hello this is the red box podcast i'm matt Shorty, bringing you the best of my times radio show you can listen monday to friday 10 to 1 on Times Radio on your DAB, your smart speaker, your app, or at times.radio. Now, before I tell you what's coming up on the podcast today, I want to tell you about something that's very special that we're launching on Friday. We've got a brand new series starting on the Red Box podcast. This year marks 50 years since the launch of Weekend World, the flagship Sunday political programme which paved the way for, well, everyone that followed. It kick-started a broadcasting arms race. In the half-century that followed, there have been Sunday shows with tough questioning, soft questioning, and even softer furnishings. Kipper ties, skinny ties, no ties at all. But over the next six weeks, we're going to tell the story of how what happened on the Sunday sofa became more important than what happened even in the House of Commons, how political and journalistic careers were made and broken, even how elections were won and lost. We'll bring you the stories of presenters and producers, prime ministers and press officers. Over the course of the series, you're going to hear from presenters and producers of landmark shows like Andrew Marr, John Humphreys, Jeremy Vine, Adam Bolton, Jonathan Dimbleby, Peter Jay, Matthew Paris, Barney Jones, David Aronovich, Steve Richards, Sophie Ridge and Trevor Phillips. The series will also feature memories of interviews, good and bad, from senior politicians, including Tony Blair, William Hague, Neil Kinnock and Peter Mandelson. Who, interestingly, Peter Mandelson went from being a producer on Weekend World to being a spin doctor for the Labour Party and then later appearing on the Sunday shows himself as a cabinet minister. We're going to start later this week on Friday, on the Friday edition of the podcast. We'll start with Weekend World, which launched in 1972. We'll take you behind the scenes in future episodes of Breakfast with Frost, On the Record, The Andrew Marr Show, the explosion at the turn of the century, including the Sunday programme, Sunday Politics, Bolton on Sunday and Jonathan Dimbleby. And then we'll round things off at the end of the series with the newest kid on the block, Sophie Ridge on Sunday. And the series is especially timely as the BBC wonders what to do with the slot vacated by Andrew Marr. And Channel 4 prepares to launch a Sunday show with Andrew Neil, but not on Sunday mornings, but on Sunday night. So that's the Sunday shows at 50 starting this Friday on Times Radio and here on the Redbox podcast. Right, that's enough about what's happening later in the week. Uh, let's bring you up to date with what's happening on today's episode. Coming up, today marks 50 years since Nixon went to China. 
It was supposed to mark a new dawn in relations between China and the West. Said relations have been through quite the roller coaster since then. We'll look back on what happened then, what's happened since, and what the future might hold. First, as ever, we kick off though with our columnist panel, and on a Monday, it is of course Libby Rachie. It's Libby Purvis and Rachel Sylvester. Rachel, let's talk. It's quite. Uh, there's got a lot of sort of quite distinct stories around right now. Let's talk about the Labour Party because we don't talk about them. Um, uh, all that often. They seem to have got themselves in a sort of long wrangle about what to do about terrorists. Um, this all, it was all started by Angela Rayner, Labour's deputy leader, um, who went on Matt Ford's podcast and said that the police should shoot terrorists and ask questions second. Uh, which is also, you know, it was all she was making clear she's quite hard line on law and order. Uh, Jeremy Corbyn, way back in 2015, said he was not happy with the shoot to kill policy. What do you think is going on here? It feels like there's two things going on, Rachel. Uh, partly there's a question about, you know, the police, but also really they're going quite hard line on not being the party of Corbyn anymore. Yeah, exactly. So there's two really interesting things. There's the anti-Corbyn um, idea and then also trying to sound tough once again as uh, Tony Blair was on Law and Order. Remember when the Prime Minister himself is being investigated by the police for breaking his own lockdown laws. So this is a kind of opportunity for Labour to kind of step into that tough on crime, tough on the causes of crime space that um, was was really critical to Tony Blair's landslide in 1997. But the the problem, obviously, with Angela Rayner's comment is it's fine if they are terrorists, but if they're not, it's a problem, <laughs> um, which is what some in the part, you know, her critics in the party are saying. What I thought was so interesting is that Wes Dreeting is doubling down on the kind of tough on crime uh, argument and, and defending her. And, of course, the police, the whole point of the shoot-to-kill policy is that the police you do have to shoot first and ask questions later to some extent, but you have to be very sure that it is a terrorist, as we saw in um, the London Bridge attack very close to our office, where the police did shoot somebody dead who had on a fake suicide vest, but it was it was uh, a fake uh, bomb, but it was part of the sort of terrorist attack. Um, but there wasn't, in that case, a sort of court case before the shooting. Um, so by definition, that's uh, that's how it works. But they're definitely trying to distance themselves from Jeremy Corbyn, who was um, very iffy about that policy. Morning, Libby. What do you what do you make of this? The sort of Labour, like I said, it, it seems that this is to be about more as much about Jeremy Corbyn as it is about terrorists. Yes, I mean, but we all remember Jean-Charles de Menezes, the innocent uh, Brazilian who was shot in the tube, and the judge in the inquiry exonerated Cressida Dick, though a lot of left-wingers still attack her for it because she was the officer in charge. If you talk to police in these situations, it's really, really difficult because if there's a suicide vest, you can't do the thing of, of shoot to disable, you know, shoot in the knee or whatever to disable. You actually have to do a shot to the head because otherwise there's a risk of him detonating it if you really believe there's a suicide vest. And I think these these on-the-ground decisions are so edgy for, for, for police, so, so difficult, that it is not helpful when politicians start trying to make capital out of it, you know, distance yourself from a former leader or whatever. You know, it's policing is, is a hands-on, front-line job. And I, I do wish that these kind of arguments would not constantly be, be sort of stirred up just for political, uh, you know, political purposes. 
It also struck me as, a, as an interesting moment for the Labour Party aligning themselves with the police, just by, just at the, the exact point that everyone else seems quite critical of the police and their track record on a whole load of things, Rachel. Yes, and what's so interesting as well is Angela Rayner is a bit of a heroine to the left of the Labour Party because she comes from this working class background, very tough upbringing, um, came up through the sort of union movement. But actually, she's quite hardline. I remember interviewing her about antisocial behaviour. She's quite sort of Blairite sounding in a way on it. So she, you know, the the... The left are a bit confused by her intervention on this, I think. But it's that sort of difference between the kind of lefty liberal metropolitan elite, the Corbynistas, if you like, um, who are very mm. um, liberal on law and order, and the kind of the the kind of more working class Labour, including West Streeting, who also grew up in a very difficult council estate in East London, um, and Angela Rayner, who have a, perhaps a more um, uh, instinctive understanding of where those red wall voters might be on these issues. Yeah, I think that's no, true. Yeah. I think that's absolutely right, yeah. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a, it, her, yes, Angela Wayner does confuse um, uh, Corbyn. So that's a really good, uh, really good point. Um, Libby, let's now talk about your column because uh, it's, the, it's the quiet ones you have to keep an eye on. And uh, you're, you argue in your column today that, that never mind Charles and his dodgy donors or Prince Andrew and his dodgy court cases or Prince Harry and his dodgy podcast it's princess anne that you need to keep an eye on yes it just irritated me that this uh, the, the list of councillors of states included the absent uh, increasingly ridiculous harry and the disgraced andrew you know that they are there in this quite important role if the queen was disabled and you know prince uh, uh, prince charles was abroad to sort of start picking up things like um, all, all you know the, the royal duties royal assent and all the rest of it it is completely ridiculous that princess anne the best behaved and one of the most intelligent members of the royal family, is sidelined. And it sort of led me back on to the fact of what happened in 2013 when they decided, not before time, to end the law of primogeniture, which means that now a girl can, you know, like little baby Princess Charlotte and so on, can actually be in the line of succession before brothers. Um, but they, they left Anne out of it. They said, oh, only born after 2011. Anne should absolutely be high up in the line of succession. She's the Queen's daughter. You know, she's older than Andrew. Um, you know, she should, she should be there. And she just isn't. It's just part of this old-fashioned thing that she's down at number 17, way below Andrew's grandchildren in the line of succession. So those two things sort of came together. And I thought, actually, let us value Anne. Let us publicly and let the royal family publicly value Anne as its hardest working and least problematic member next to maybe Wessex and the Cambridges. Uh, let us value her better. Let them value her better. It really irritated me, the councillors of state business, because I, I wouldn't give tuppence for a bill which has given its royal assent by bloody Harry, would you? <laughs> no. Uh, <laughs> what's he going to do? It like he's do it over Twitter or something? That was an awkward giggle. <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> language, um, language, purpose, language. <laughs> uh, but it's it's um it, it's it's interesting the thing with Anne because obviously you know in the in the past when she was um uh, you know she obviously did get divorced and that was a bit of a uh, a scandal. But actually she is the one who has kept her head down and hasn't created lots of headlines, still goes around dutifully reopening things and, uh, you know, wearing the same clothes again, but that doesn't get her splashed all over Mail Online. Um, you know, she's, she's just getting on with the job, Rachel. 
Absolutely. And she's doing, she's working incredibly hard. She's one of the most diligent members of the royal family. I thought Libby's point was absolutely right. And in fact, the women are the ones saving the royal family at the moment. Obviously, the Queen herself, but Princess Anne. And then we've got the Duchess of Cambridge this week. She's going on a trip to Denmark to visit early years um, settings for her foundation. Mm really investigating an incredibly important part of education and area that she's raising the profile of. Um, and, you know, with a kind of intellectual rigour as well as, um, you know, um, public duty. Um, and I think there is that feeling. It's a bit like that um, quote in The Leopard, you know, the Italian novel, everything must change so that everything must stay the same. And if the royal family does want to survive, they have to move with the times. They have to accept that women are genuinely equal um and um, you know frankly um you know charles with his sort of out of touch you know lifestyle and prince andrew with his appalling um history princess anne is far more in touch with um the voters and ordinary people She's, she's also, she is actually, uh, I mean, uh, when people say, oh, she's very bright, it sounds patronising, but the point is she's right across her brief. I mean, I've had to deal with her and met her and encountered her in various things. And whether it's lighthouses or child malnutrition in the third world uh, or seafarers or victim support, she's always, she's read the papers about it. She's read the briefs. She thinks, she knows, she, like, like the Queen, she, she puts some effort into knowing uh, what it's all about. And when you look at some of the pronouncements recently, for example, of Prince Harry, or the or the total ignorance yeah. about everything of Prince Andrew, you think, why are these councillors of state and not this brilliant, clever, sort of good woman? You know, outrageous. I think oh, we've done our bit. I, actually, she's also one of the more interesting characters in the Crown. She probably, you know, it actually emerges of the Crown. In, um, with a, probably the Crown is fiction. <laughs> it's oh, fiction. Yeah. But I but I'm citing it in it's support Netflix, of your argument, Libby, man. in which case it's fine. <laughs> OK, fine. Let's, uh, let's finally talk about... <laughs> uh, let's finally talk about uh, the high street. Have we gone back to the high street post-Covid? Or are we all just ordering things online, Rachel? I am definitely ordering things online. There was a story... Um in the paper at the weekend about how we were all supposed to go into shops and do yoga and have sex therapy and boxing classes and things like that. That just absolutely fills me with horror. I think I like the privacy <laughs> of ordering something online. You can try it on at home. I know it's probably terribly on green or everything, but you can then send it back if it doesn't fit. Nobody knows. Whereas the idea now of actually going into a shop and trying something on in a changing room just fills me with absolute horror, I'm afraid. Um, and I definitely <laughs> don't want to go to a sex therapy class or an apres ski bar or yoga or boxing or anything with anybody else in a shop. No, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Libby, what about you? Well, okay. I look. I I shop online too, and I live in the sticks, and I'm getting on. Good grief! But I love the idea of the excitement of the department store returning. You know, they oh, let's go to Harrods. Ooh, uh, I remember once going to years ago going to Selfridges when they had a little cinema and they showed Paddington One, and so I had breakfast there with my daughter, and we watched Paddington, and then we wandered around, and it just put you in the mood to buy a sweater or a rug or a new saucepan, and there was a kind of fun about well, the big old department coat, stores. Presumably. 
and if if they're trying if they're trying to bring back a certain amount of fun, I say good luck to them. Really, you know, I don't just want to shuffle around in an overperfumed perfume hall. And, and like Rachel, I don't terribly like changing rooms. But I, I think I think the idea of bringing back some fun to the high street in any form at all has to be applauded. Uh, you know, otherwise, how dreary will cities be? Rachel Sylvester and Libby Purvis there, and you can read them both in The Times every week. Just get yourself a subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash times red box. Up next, it's Nixon in China. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewellery. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. You're listening to the Red Box Podcast. Now, let's take a look at what happened 50 years ago today when Nixon went to China. After decades without any diplomatic ties, US President Richard Nixon arrived in Beijing on the 21st of February 1972 on a mission to build peace between the two countries. The government of the People's Republic of China and the government of the United States have had great differences. We will have differences in the future. But what we must do is to find a way to see that we can have differences without being enemies in war. Henry Kissinger, the US Secretary of State who'd been to China to set up the visit, tells President Nixon a little about what to expect. Nixon appears anxious to meet Chairman Mao. Well, I think what we have to do until the first day is to, uh, is to feel it out as we... Uh, we're going we're going to have to find out what the mood is. That day, we have a plenary session and we have a dinner, don't we? Okay. Have postponed the dinner? I've never seen them pay any attention. But they always start on the second. I mean, there's right. never, they're never late. Start on the second and end on the hour. On the first night, a banquet is held to welcome the U.S. diplomatic entourage. The American people are a great people. The Chinese people are a great people. The peoples of our two countries have always been friendly to each other. But owing to reasons known to all, 
contacts between the two peoples were suspended for over 20 years. Now, through the common efforts of China and the United States, the gate to friendly contacts has finally been opened. And during the week, Nixon got to partake in a little tourism, visiting the Great Wall of China and areas of the Chinese countryside. I think that you would have to conclude that this is a great wall and that it had to be built by a great people. I think one of the results of our trip, we hope, may be that uh, the walls that are erected, uh, whether they are physical walls like this or whether they are other walls of ideology or philosophy, uh, will not divide peoples in the world. After a successful trip, the Shanghai communique is written. The document pledged that both countries would work towards normalizing their relationship. The joint communique which we have issued today summarizes the results of our talks. But what we have said in that communique is not nearly as important as what we will do in the years ahead to build a bridge across 16,000 miles and 22 years of hostility which have divided us in the past. And what we have said today is that we shall build that bridge. With Chairman Mao, with the Prime Minister, and with others with whom we have met, our talks have been characterized by frankness, by honesty, by determination, and above all, by mutual respect. That sort of guys you through exactly what was happening 50 years ago today. So how did this trip come about? President Nixon going to China uh, 50 years ago. I spoke to Joe Renoir. He's the resident professor of American studies at John Hopkins University. And he told me what the U.S. approach was at the time. It was after two decades of just complete estrangement. From 1949, 1950, the United States and China had no real official relationship. Uh, the United States was supporting the government in Taiwan, the Taipei government. And in that period, the U.S., in fact, uh, followed a two-tiered policy to try to uh, weaken China. Uh, the first was to marginalize the Beijing regime, sever diplomatic relations, cut trade and travel, uh, deny it all kinds of multilateral recognition in the United Nations and elsewhere. Uh, and the second was to strengthen regional partnerships. So you see in the middle of the 20th century, the United States setting up uh, uh, treaty alliances with Taiwan, Japan, South Korea, uh, getting into the beginnings of the Vietnam War in the 1950s and early 60s, and trying to, uh, as best was possible, uh, prevent a, a communist bloc from developing, which, which in the 1960s, this was actually possible. But the, the Soviet, uh, Soviet China bloc, uh, uh, seeing that as the major challenge to a post-war liberal world order, U.S.-led liberal world order. So in that 20-year period, uh, the United States and China occasionally had back-channel talks uh, in Warsaw, Poland, for example. But for the most part, the two countries really never spoke with one another. They had uh, just the most the most modest of, of connections. And this, by the way, after many decades prior to the, the 1949 revolution victory by the communists, so that bringing us up to the, to the late 1960s, early 70s, how did this uh, how did this come about? I think the, the best way to frame it is to think in terms of how that that bifurcated world order where there was a Soviet China camp and a, and a Western led U.S., U.K., NATO camp uh, that was on both sides. They were falling apart. 
late in the 1960s. I think that's a, be- a good way to frame it. Um, there was a, a one might say, a, a thaw in, in both camps or a breakup break in both camps. Um, there was a thaw in tensions between the U.S. and USSR and the nations of Europe. This was beginning by about 1970. Uh, divisions in the communist camp. Uh, quite famously, the, the the Chinese and the Soviets were were dividing in the 60s. We called it the Sino-Soviet split. Uh, and in the Western camp, uh, the, it was not quite as 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 uh, unified as it had been some years earlier. Uh, the United States was involved in the Vietnam War, remember, and uh, the U.S. could not get any of its partners or allies to help it, and any of its European partners, its NATO partners. So the point is that by the end of the 60s, there was a, a bit of a different environment, a bit of a different global environment. And this is where we see uh, the entry of this new leadership in America, Richard Nixon, Henry Kissinger, and uh, a slump, somewhat different attitude in China as well. And so what was the role? Kissinger goes first to try and pave the way, as ever with these things. You know, this is true of all world leaders when they visit anywhere. They don't just turn up and ask for a chat. You know, someone else goes and paves the way first. And it, it felt to Henry Kissinger to do that. Yeah, Henry Kissinger was tasked with going going to, to, to visit with the Chinese to see if this was possible. He had to do it secretly because, you know, you don't want to have this publicized and have it be set up as something that might then fail. Uh, I think this would be all but impossible today uh, in the age of social media and everyone having a camera. But so, yeah, he went through um, and traveled through through a, a, a different a back channel method into Beijing. And uh, it was also not just to set up a meeting, but to kind of feel out the Chinese to see how they might negotiate what they might want, uh, whether they would be a. a uh, whether they would have uh, some agreement with the things that the American side wanted. Uh, in reality, what we know uh, from, because a lot of the documents have been released in the meantime, and a lot of the participants have since spoken about it. Uh, we know that the, the American side, Nixon and Kissinger, they did not have a lot of requirements. Uh, they were primarily interested in getting the meeting, uh, getting the opening, uh, having the, having the two countries somehow begin something that might lead to something further down the road. So to answer your question, the actual the actual process of opening up the the relationship, the actual first meeting, it did involve negotiation. They did have to get together to to establish that there would be some things that they would agree on. But for the most part, they were willing to kick the can down the road for anything that would be controversial. The most controversial thing would be Taiwan. Uh, that would be the, that would be then. And, and you might argue now the most controversial issue uh, they were also talking about things like the Vietnam War uh, on the American side. They said, hey, maybe we can get the Beijing government to agree to lean on the Hanoi government a little bit uh, to make a deal with the Americans or something like that. Uh, but the, 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 the broader geopolitical benefits were, were very quite clear for both sides. I mean, both Beijing and Washington could see, hey, we can get real geopolitical outcomes if we if we open this up. And uh, we'll see that in Moscow, they will notice this. In the other capitals of the world, they will notice this. Uh, so uh, both sides get quite a lot of what they want, but they did not make a lot of great. Uh, uh, they did not have to force the other side to do very much. They both wanted it. It's interesting that sometimes the success of a meeting or a summit or talks is based on the agreements that come out afterwards. In this case, it really is the existence of the meeting in and of itself. Um, and what that said about the two leaders and what that said about the, the you know, how that then ripples around the globe rather than anything that they particularly discussed. I mean, how did they, what do we know about them in particular? Do, you know, how did they get on? 
Uh, do we know very much about what actually goes on inside the meeting? Yeah, we know a little bit. We know a little bit. Uh, Zhou Enlai, who is the, the chief foreign minister in China, was the one who, did, who led most of the negotiations. Uh, quite famously, you see the photos, for example, of Nixon and Mao meeting, Nixon, Mao and Kissinger. Uh, they only met once at, at Zhongnan High there in Beijing. Uh, Mao was quite old at the time, and he was uh, living in very Spartan circumstances. Uh, he was, you know, someone who left the negotiations to others. I mean, they negotiated for several days over all kinds of touchy issues, uh, both in Beijing and Shanghai. But, uh, you know, when they when when they met with Mao, uh, just about everyone who comments, uh, who, who was there in, at the time comments that, you know, Mao was a quite powerful figure. I mean, he, he got the Americans to come to him. He, he didn't have to fly off to Washington. He wasn't going to do that. He got the Americans to come to him. This was a great face-saving method for anyone who criticized him. Uh, he, he in, in a lot of ways, overshadowed the others. You know, Henry Kissinger later wrote that uh, Mao was one of the most impressive people he had ever met. He said when he walked in the room, you knew that this man was a world leader. And this coming from Henry, Henry Kissinger, quite uh, a, a man very proud of himself, saying that someone else in the room was the real leader. So uh, the... How they got on, uh, Richard Nixon, uh, in fact, flattered Mao quite a bit, said, hey, I've, I, I think your writings have, have really been uh, remarkable. And uh, Mao, not really willing to return the favor, Mao was a bit uh, uh, kind of undercut Nixon in some ways. He said, maybe we should just allow Kissinger to talk. He's the real foreign policy visionary. Uh, so, uh, the, But most of the negotiations, that was a relatively short meeting, and most of the negotiations were between uh, Kissinger and Zhou Enlai and um with Nixon along and kind of kind of leading the way as well on the American side. And uh, there were others on the, on the Chinese side as well. But, you know, everyone always kind of thinks, well, Mao was still the, the, in charge of the country. He was. And Mao was certainly leading. It's still the time of the Cultural Revolution. Uh, the Chinese having to, fi- having to figure out most of the, their domestic issues. Uh, but, you know, but, but they, the fact that they were able to have this happen and able to come up with a communique at the end, uh, you, you're right. This was uh, more, of, more of a kind of globally globally influential result for having had the meeting rather than just being all the details, which is what normally happens in a, in a summit. Uh, that was Joe Renoir, who's the resident professor of American studies at John Hopkins University. Now, I spoke to Orville Shell, director of the Center on U.S.-China Relations at the Asia Society in New York. He's been monitoring U.S.-China relations for over 50 years since that first meeting took place. I asked him to describe what the relationship has been like since. Well, I think one could describe the, uh, uh, particularly the U.S.-China relationship, but indeed China's relationship to the world is like a very volatile stock market chart. It kind of goes up, it goes down, it goes up, it goes down. So I came into this during the height of the Cold War. And of course, uh, relations, at least between the U.S. and China, were very, very uh, strained. Uh, in our past wars, it said not good for travel in the People's Republic of China. Uh, that was not the case, of course, for European countries. Um, and so it was the, 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 the deepest of deep freezes. And we had been at war, of course, with China and Korea. And then along came uh, Kissinger and Nixon in 72. And that was a true inflection point where they both saw an opportunity to team up against the Soviet Union. And <clears throat> we all know the story of uh, Nixon and Kissinger's sort of epic trip. And then recognition happened in 1979 between the U.S. and China. And that precipitated a kind of a love fest. And it also uh, uh, sort of initiated this halcyon period of what we, has come to be known as engagement. 
And the suppositions of that were, if we just collaborate, trade, do more cultural exchanges, in, uh, academic exchanges, slowly we'll bend the metal of Chinese Maoism and Leninism. And <clears throat> they will become more soluble in the global system. And it is John Foster Dulles described it as peaceful evolution, which is a word that is an anathema in the Chinese Communist Party. So good, that went along just fine uh, uh, for a decade. And then, of course, we had the Beijing massacre in 1989. The stock market uh, stock just crashed. The line plummeted down. Relations turned very badly. But however, they came back again in the 90s under Jiang Zemin. And then we thought, all right, engagement still has some some uh, some uh, logic. Uh, but we had to change the logic a bit because we didn't have the Soviet Union anymore. So what was the new logic? The new logic was ah, uh, open markets <clears throat> equal open societies. And if we just keep trading and making money in China, that will, uh, that will slowly change them. And then, alas, uh, if we're looking at this uh, figurative stock market chart again, uh, along came Xi Jinping. And after the, 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 the stock between U.S. and China in terms of positive relations had risen rather precipitously, it crashed again. And we are now in an era that very reminiscent of where I came into all of this in the late 50s, early 60s. I wonder whether, because obviously we see, I mean, certainly in Britain, we already see things through the the Western American uh, approach to all this. What does what what is China always wanted from these various meetings and the ups and the downs? I mean, clearly the West hoped at various points to Westernize uh, China, um, move towards democracy, open up the economy, and so on. What was the from the Chinese point of view? What were they hoping to get from it? What what? Um, why have these these meetings if they weren't going to go down that path? Well, it's very interesting. Ever since the uh, Qing dynasty in the last part of the 19th century, China had this idea that they could borrow from the West, but they would borrow practical things from the West. They wouldn't borrow cultural or political things from the West. So they had this very quaint notion that you could separate these out. You could get, you know, howitzers, gunboats, telegraph systems, uh, you know, all of the appurtenances of modern uh, life and of a modern country, but you didn't have to change your fundamental nature. Um, and that fundamentally was the strategy of uh, Deng Xiaoping when he came to power in 1978-79, very counterintuitive because he'd been cached and, 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 and basically thrown out the window during the Cultural Revolution. So if you go back and read very carefully what was said uh, in the early 80s, they never renounced the Communist Party. They never renounced the one-party system. But they wanted the West's finance. They wanted the West's technology. They wanted the West's uh, military uh, uh, armaments. They wanted the technology, but not the system. Uh, now, sometimes they got a little fuzzy, and there were some people who actually did believe that China should become more democratic. But of course, those people ended rather bitterly in 1989. So that is basically the formula. Give us your practical things so we can become wealthy and powerful. But we don't want whatever it else, else it is you're peddling on, this, on the other side of the ledger, namely Christianity, democracy, 
uh, liberal democratic values, all of your uh, American hegemony. Uh, and that uh, now we see uh, indelibly clearly under Xi Jinping. For most people's day-to-day lives, they don't go around thinking about, you know, who's who's running China and which president's speaking to who and all that sort of thing. But if you go to the shops, you pick up almost anything. Uh, electrical goods, clothes, um, furniture. Flip it upside down, you look on the back, more more probably than any other country, it'll still say made in China. Yes. And I, I, that's such a, it's such an, in, you know, integral part of our lives now that, that so much of what we buy and consume comes from China, despite the fact that, like you said, we're currently going through a pretty bad diplomatic um, uh, patch uh, in relation to them. And then we've got people saying, well, we should be um, boycotting the Winter Olympics because of the uh, um, human rights record of China and the treatment of the Uyghur Muslims. And yet we'll go out and buy all this stuff which is coming over in great big boats from China. We have a very peculiar relationship with China. We have a codependent relationship in the sense that we are buying Chinese stuff, but we don't like their system. However, I think if you, and this is an undeniable contradiction, and we are dependent on them for many things like uh, polysilicon for silicon for solar panels, pharmaceuticals, rare earths, a number of other things. Um, but I think it's, it's very important if you're trying to foresee the future in some way, which is always difficult in China's case, to look at the trends. And the trends, I think, are incontrovertibly on the side of decoupling. We see it now in, uh, <clears throat> you know, 5G uh, technology. We see it in microprocessors. We see it in all these entities and lists, at least the United States has with companies in China you cannot trade with any longer. So I think this is the trend. And it wouldn't take much by way of a clash in the South China Sea, the Taiwan Straits, or, you know, with Japan and the East China Sea to really make that fabric rent irrevocably apart. But there still is a curious dependency. But if you go to Washington, the only thing the Republicans and the Democrats can agree on is we need to become more uh, more self-sufficient, reshore our supply lines and not be dependent on China because the systems are absolutely and incontrovertibly opposite. I suppose the final question really, is that is that the basically the logical conclusion, having tried all other options, uh, having tried uh, being going there and being nice, having tried being tougher in the hope of uh, everyone coming around, actually just saying this isn't going to work. We need to pull out, be self-sufficient um, and just not just disentangle ourselves from that relationship altogether. I think you have to remember that since 1972, when Kissinger and Nixon went to China, nine United States presidential administrations backed engagement, which was let's let's help China out. They're not antithetical to our interests. Let's cooperate. Let's get them into the world system. And we won't have antagonistic Maoist revolutionaries running around trying to overthrow everything. I think uh, my own view is that was the right thing to do, to try that. Did it work? No. And now we're on a, uh, uh, we have to kind of course correct. We need a, a, a new, a new, a whole new posture towards China because Xi Jinping is in a sense canceled reform, canceled the logic of engagement 
And uh, we're now in a much more adversarial, um, antagonistic relationship. That's all we've got time for on today's episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcast from. And you can listen via the Times Radio app. Catch me Monday to Friday, 10 to 1, live on Times Radio. And if you want to come on and play the hugely popular quiz, can you get to number 10? Email me your details, matt.chorley at times.radio. And we'll get you on very soon. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.